America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. It is a great nation. It's a great nation that is still confronting the incredible evil of the war in Ukraine. People want to tune it out. Uh, We won't. There is actually a reminder, a brand new institution in Washington, D.C., a new museum about the victims of communism. Uh, The victims of communism, millions upon millions of them in Ukraine. Some of them are going on every day, every week, right now. So what is the outcome of that war? We're going to be speaking to David Leonhardt of the New York Times later in the show, who has written a uh, profound and important piece about the three possible outcomes of this war. Uh, We will be speaking with him. Also, why is it? that things in America feel so unsafe. It's not just the increase in crime. It's not just the occurrence of terrible mass shootings, which go on and on. Why is there the, the general idea that we are on the precipice of some kind of disaster and we're helpless to deal with it? We'll be speaking to uh, Mark Fisher of the Washington Post, who wrote an important piece about why nothing feels safe. Americans are divided, anxious, and quick to panic. Anything to do about that? Well, whatever we're doing about it, it's not particularly effective what the Biden administration is doing. There is a um, an analysis by Karl Rove, where whatever you think about him and his political analysis right now, He's a sharp political operator. He got George W. Bush elected twice to be president of the United States, including uh, the situation that uh, George W. Bush achieved. He is the only Republican to actually win a majority of the popular vote uh, since uh, his father did in 1988. It's, It's pretty amazing. And uh, Karl Rove was called the architect. He had something to do with that. He's talking about how Biden has picked exactly the wrong policies when he's coming up to the midterm right now and why we are looking at a very likely tidal wave of uh, Republican sentiment, not because the Republicans are doing so well, but because President Biden is doing so badly. Right now, he's uh, doing a fine job uh, handing out presidential medals of freedom, which is a a good look for a president of the United States. He can be presidential. He can be regal. He's fine. Everybody's smiling. Everybody's happy to be honored. Uh, But how is everything else going? going Terribly. It's just horribly. And so much so that uh, there's a columnist Uh, named Lynn Schmidt, who I don't really know that well, but she's in St. Louis, St. Louis Post-Dispatch. She has a new column, which is entitled Restore Trust, Pence, Cheney, in 2024. Is she kidding? Uh, would, um, Would Mike Pence really want to run together with Liz Cheney, who is having a a real struggle uh, trying to uh, be reelected in her constituency, which is the state of Wyoming. 
But we will talk about that and the upcoming announcements concerning the January 6th committee, where Liz Cheney is one of the driving forces behind it, and an example of new leadership being sought very dramatically in Great Britain. Uh, They are about to pick a new prime minister. Boris Johnson has resigned. He uh, showed that he put his party and his country uh, above himself. He could have probably struggled, hung on for a while longer. But right now, the Tory party gets to pick a new prime minister, and it's a fairly complicated process that they're going to be going through. Should we have the same kind of system in the United States? If, if Joe Biden could do what, uh, what Boris Johnson is doing right now, resign and be assured that his party would select someone to replace him, that you'd have another Democrat as president. Uh, Don't you think that would be tempting for a lot of Democrats right now who are looking at Biden's approval rating? (laughs) His approval rating among independents, and this was featured earlier uh, this week, his approval rating among independents is 18%. Now, there are probably uh, uh, any number of politicians who are no longer alive who have 18% approval rating because people don't realize that they're no longer functioning. And the idea that any Democrat can win without being at least competitive among independents is is far-fetched. Okay, uh, first off, what's the problem with uh, Joe Biden? Daniel Henninger, who's such a consistent source of inspiration and insight, in his column today in the Wall Street Journal, his Wonderland column, he says, considering all that's going on in the U.S. now, economic distress, killings, street protests, President Biden's Fourth of July remarks were remarkably disunifying. What did President Biden say for the Fourth of July Uh, In recent days, he said, there's been reason to think that this country is moving backward, that freedom is being reduced, that rights we assumed were protected are no longer. A reminder that we remain in an ongoing battle for the soul of America. Mr. Biden, writes Daniel Hanger, is of course referring to one thing, the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade, the decision identifying a constitutional right to abortion. His purpose in great part was partisan. Democrats intend to run on abortion into the midterm elections. Though it will be interesting to see how the party fares 50 years after Roe with an argument made clear the last week that as an American value, aborting a pregnancy now holds primacy over birth. Amazing, isn't it? And again, the tone deafness of President Biden on this, which is shown by his repeated insistence on basically dealing with the problems that we are facing without acknowledging fully their severity. And uh, Karl Rove, uh, also in the Wall Street Journal, writes, as I mentioned, about Biden's six misstep 2022 midterm strategy. And what he analogizes here, and I think it's, It's very insulting, but it's also very insightful. He analogizes this to the um, uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who's a famous uh, medical philosopher 
who identified the five stages of grief, uh, the six steps of the Biden administration's strategy uh, are like the uh, five stages of grief, says Carl Rove. And you start with denial. The uh, president deals with the mistakes in the dismal economic environment by saying things are better than they really are. Remember the chaotic withdrawal from Kabul last August? Mr. Biden hailed the extraordinary success of this mission. This is not made up. He really did. Anybody see that uh, the withdrawal from Kabul was an extraordinary success? He uh, unconvincingly claimed we were ready for the pandemonium that unfolded after he essentially surrendered Afghanistan to the Taliban, which he defended as the right decision. Uh, The president's apparent self-deception got worse as inflation and economic concerns grew. In February, Mr. Biden crowed over the monthly jobs report saying, quote, history has been made. Though 2.9 million fewer Americans were working than before the pandemic and inflation was 7.9% over the preceding 12 months. A couple of weeks later, Gallup released a poll uh, clocking approval for his handling of the economy at 37% with disapproval at 62%. Mr. Biden touted the historic progress the U.S. economy had made because of his, quote, strategy to grow the economy from the bottom up and middle out. So where do we grow from here? We'll get to it on The Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved show, there is uh, terrible news for President Biden in terms of polling. Uh, as inflation keeps rising and recession fears loom, a new Yahoo News YouGov poll, brand new, shows that Joe Biden is currently in the worst shape of his presidency. And that's not a comment on his physical well-being. That's a comment on his standing in the polls. The survey of 1,541 U.S. adults, which was conducted from June 10th to 13th, found that if another presidential election were held today, more registered voters say they'd cast ballots for Donald Trump, 44%, than for Biden, 42%. Even though the House January 6th committee has spent the last week linking to Trump to what is called a seditious conspiracy, to uh, overturn the 2020 election and laying the groundwork for possible criminal prosecution. Uh, the, the idea of another Trump-Biden race is so incredibly depressing. If anybody's excited about that race and how that would pan out and what it would mean for the country... Uh, it's, again, what's so so bizarre about this is both of these guys are in their late 70s. Uh, nothing wrong with being in your 70s. Being in your late 70s, maybe going for um, 
another shot at uh, the presidency is is not ideal. Look at the situation in Britain. I mean, they have a list of 12 people who are likely to become prime minister within the next couple of weeks because the Tory party is going to be choosing a replacement uh uh, Prime Minister for Boris Johnson, who uh, made this announcement. It's historic. It's our closest ally across the pond. And there, there's something about the British Parliament and the way it functions that I find actually very informative, even stirring at times. Here is Bojo, who is, uh, if nothing else, a very colorful character, announcing, well, the end of his career as prime minister uh, the clip three it is clearly now the will of the parliamentary conservative party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new prime minister and i've agreed with sir graham brady the chairman of our backbench mps that the process of choosing that new leader should begin now and the timetable will be announced next week and i've today appointed a cabinet to serve as i will until a new leader is in place. Okay, and then new leader will be in place shortly. The The most um, likely winner for that distinction is Ben Wallace, who is the defense secretary. And uh, he is Scottish. He's 52. He uh, enjoys, <laughs> according to the information about him, he enjoys rugby. And uh, he has a, a very distinguished military background. He did not come up through the party ranks. He came up through the military, and he is a major advocate of increased defense spending and even closer cooperation with the United States. So it would be a wonderful thing, frankly, if Ben Wallace becomes the successor to uh, Boris Johnson. You heard it here first. Uh and uh, in any event, Prime Minister Johnson also had his own explanation for the train wreck of his uh, leadership. Uh, this is clip five. Listen. So, of course, it's painful not to be able to see through so many ideas and, and projects myself. But as we've seen uh, at Westminster, uh, the herd instinct is powerful when the herd moves. It moves. And my friends, in politics, no one is remotely indispensable. And our brilliant and Darwinian system will produce another leader equally committed to taking this country forward through tough times, not just helping families to get through it, but changing and improving the way we do things, cutting burdens on businesses and families, and yes, cutting taxes, because that is the way to generate the growth and the income we need to pay for great public services. Uh, that's um, Prime Minister Boris Johnson, whose approval rating is dismal right now, but it's not as bad as Biden's. Biden, however, cannot uh, simply resign and turn it over to a, um, a qualified and a viable leader of his party. I think this is one of those things that some people said, well, it was brilliant for him to pick Kamala because he somehow knew that she would be his insurance policy. In other words, if, if Kamala Harris were more viable and were uh, more at least conceivable 
as an immediate replacement for Joe Biden? It's a scary thought because uh, with all of the weaknesses of Joe Biden and uh, the polling is quite uh, indicative of that. Uh, Chris Saliza writes that Joe Biden's dismal poll numbers are a feature, not a glitch of his presidency. Biden's political honeymoon lasted six months. His messy marriage with the American public has now lasted almost twice as long. Uh, an analysis of Gallup's polling on Biden's job approval rating since his January 2021 inauguration, he was inaugurated just two weeks after the riot in the Capitol building, reveals that the president's middling numbers are remarkably consistent over the past year. The last time Biden had the approval of a majority of the American public in a Gallup survey was in July of last year, a year ago. Biden's approval at that time was right at 50%. The last time Biden's job approval rating was higher than 45% in Gallup's polling was August of 2021, when it stood at 49%. Since uh, the last 10 months, Biden's job approval in Gallup polling has never been higher than 43%. In fact, Biden's poll numbers have been both consistent and consistently bad for the entirety of 2022. Two. Will he be helped by the uh, joyous news that Forbes is reporting that Moscow will agree to release detained WNBA star Brittany Griner if the U.S. government agrees to a prisoner swap involving a Russian arms dealer? Uh, that's what um, that Russian arms dealer's lawyer has told NBC News today offering a potentially unsavory option to the Biden administration. Uh, given the fact that the arms dealer is someone who basically was arrested for damaging, violating international law and damaging uh, the, the security of the United States, uh, is it appropriate to trade him as if he's some kind of equivalent for a, a pothead professional basketball player no matter how sympathetic she may be to her fans uh we can get to more of that meanwhile what's wrong with the united states why do americans feel so unsafe and bitterly divided and quick to panic we'll speak about that with mark fisher of the washington post coming up on the medved show the michael medved show i'm just shocked And on the Michael Medved Show, it is a pleasure and an honor to welcome to this show Mark Fisher, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter, a senior editor at the Washington uh, Post, who writes on a wide range of topics. Uh, his topic for the July 4th holiday, nothing feels safe, Americans are divided, anxious, and quick to panic. And uh, what he writes is that in deadly assaults and harmless bursts of celebratory explosives, a divided nation demonstrated this holiday weekend just how anxious and jittery it has become. 
Uh, Mark, thank you very much for joining us. What is the main source of this uh, anxiety, the uh, fear, the divisiveness, the sense of feeling unsafe? Well, it's a combination of things, but if you had to look for one triggering factor, I think it's the pandemic. Uh, Obviously, we've been a divided nation politically, ideologically, socially, culturally for some years now. Uh, You could probably trace most of that to the technological revolution, uh, to the impact of the Internet and particularly of social media, dividing us, isolating us, putting us in ideological silos. But the most recent triggering moment or period uh, that brought about this kind of jitters where people jump at the slightest sound uh, and are wary of being out in public again. It's got to be the pandemic because it's so isolated us. It's so divided us from one another. And uh, people in various parts of the country were literally apart from one another physically for an extended time now are inching their way or diving back into uh, crowds, as we saw on July 4th. And it is an unsettling experience. And when you lay on top of that, all of the other things the world is going through and the country is going through, and the economic uncertainty and insecurity, uh, you get end up with a pretty jittery public. Is there, uh, do you believe anything by the leadership of this country that could be done to address the uh, moral panic that you refer to in your piece? It's uh, that's really the the ultimate question. And obviously, uh, Americans voted uh, last year uh, for a president who promised to bring us back together, who promised to calm things down. Uh, Judging by his popularity ratings, we can conclude that he hasn't uh, quite succeeded at that. Um, And so the question is, what would it take? Uh, I, I don't see us coming together politically or ideologically anytime soon. Uh, But I I think our history tells us that uh, traumatic times and traumatic events uh, do have a bonding effect after they have their dividing effect. And uh, so it's entirely possible that uh, uh, things get worse and then they get better again. Uh, Of course, there are those out there who think, you know, all doom and gloom and democracy is headed uh, down uh, uh, and and away from us. Uh, I don't see that happening. I do think that uh, we have a strong history of institutions that do hold. And uh, whatever one thinks of the Trump administration, uh, we can certainly agree that the basic core institutions of society, whether it be the courts, uh, the press, the public opinion, uh, manage to be something of a check on the excesses of, uh, of, of the former president. So you do have... Uh, a a foundation of bedrock uh, institutional strength that uh, perhaps will be the ingredient that we need to begin the process of coming back together. There's a lot of speculation, obviously, about the upcoming elections, the midterm elections, where the Republicans uh, look very, very likely to win control of the House of Representatives. It may not be by a huge margin, but it will be by a bigger margin than the Democrats control it with at the moment. And at the same time, uh, when you look at the current state of the race for control of the Senate, there's every possibility the Democrats would actually gain a seat or two in the Senate races because of the nature of some of the Republican nominees. Uh, There's an argument which I've just been hearing recently, that that situation where you actually have a divided Congress and uh, a president who is... uh, 
not uh, not in a position to really bridge those divisions that that might actually be good for the country because it would feel less like one side blaming the other so clearly. Do you think that there's anything to that, that we might fare better with uh, a Republican control of the House and Democrats maintaining at least tenuous control of the Senate? Well, you know, if you'd asked me that question most any time in the last several decades, I would have said, sure, there's a very strong history in our country of Americans choosing divided government uh, because they don't want the government to uh, get into to, to be too much of a presence in our lives. They don't want the government uh, kind of going past public consensus. Uh, but the problem is that Congress is so dysfunctional. And I think leaders in both parties would agree to this. Uh, Congress is so dysfunctional that uh, adding the, the additional difficulty of divided houses of, of uh, Congress uh, could only exacerbate the paralysis that we've seen. We just went through a last several weeks of the Supreme Court session for this year in which the court repeatedly said, hey, these uh, Congress needs to take care of these issues. Congress needs to take care of uh, environmental regulation or uh, questions about any federal role in abortion uh, law, all of that kind of thing. But Congress is totally unable to do that, and Congress has proven that again and again under both Democratic and Republican control in recent years. So I don't think that divided government is uh, going to be the prescription that we're looking for to settle some of the big issues facing the country or take us any closer to uh, some turnaround economically. Um, but, But that is... Nonetheless, that is very much the preference that many Americans show repeatedly in the last few decades. They, they, they want to tie things up a bit. They want to make sure that no, neither party can have a totally free hand. <laughs> a totally free hand or any, any hand at all. Uh, in terms of the prospect, uh, right now the odds continue to be, according to odds makers, that uh, we will have a repeat of uh, Trump versus uh, Biden in 2024. Does that fill you with enthusiasm and excitement? I don't think it fills many Americans of any ideological persuasion with any excitement, and that's why I don't think it will happen. Uh, And so while both Biden and Trump may say they're going to run, I would bet in the end at least one, perhaps both of them will not run. And if they do both run, I think they will both have very strong, uh, realistic challengers who are better able to excite voters in both parties. And so uh, if I were just taking a stab in the dark, I would say uh, I will uh, put aside your Trump versus Biden and say it's going to be something more like DeSantis versus Newsom. That's exactly what uh, I would conclude. So we we see that together. And with um, actually two fairly formidable people who could uh, run um, energetic campaigns, no? It is. I think if there's any consensus, if we're looking for consensus among the American people, it's that it's time for the boomers to move on. And it is time for a (laughs) new generation of leadership. Uh, Both parties are looking awfully geriatric these days, especially the Democrats. And uh, so I I think there's a hunger for new ideas and new leadership and the generational shift, at least in terms of who runs for president, uh, we'll see about who wins. Yeah, it, 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 it could well be. It's one of those things that, uh, one of the things that, and I wrote this, well, 40 years ago, I, 
that uh, one of the things about being a baby boomer is because you're always such a bulge in the population, you always think that everything's going to be defined by you, by your generation. And the idea of uniting America to uh, persuade aging boomers to uh, move on and turn it over to some new energy and fresh faces. Uh, and Newsom versus DeSantis, and who would win? Uh, we, we will get to that and more. Mark Fisher, a great pleasure and honor to speak to you, and thank you for your outstanding piece on Nothing Feels Safe. Uh, we'll be right back on The Medved Show. Americans are going to hear the truth. The Michael Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. That's 1-800-955-1776. Okay, I'm, I'm working on this. I, I mean, really working on it and trying to make an association. As I've said many times, I honestly do feel it's important to isolate and to hold up for examination and appreciation any bits of good news that you can find. The, the country needs good news. And there is a piece of good news, but it's a piece of good news that involves one of the most gruesome and horrible chapters in all of world history. So bear with me. Uh, there has been almost nothing uh, that, that has been a forceful push to make sure that um, American kids who are being shaped by our educational system get the knowledge about just how destructive and evil the uh, most bloody and destructive system of thought and political philosophy ever has been, causing 100 million deaths. And that's a conservative estimate. 100 million deaths. Talking about communism. And uh, just days ago, the Victims of Communism Museum opened in Washington, D.C. It's a $40 million project, writes the Wall Street Journal, uh, which is the world's first museum, the world's first dedicated to the victims of the most murderous ideology in modern times. No, in all times. With three permanent galleries and nearly 10,000 square feet of space in a Beaux-Arts uh, mansion at McPherson Square in Washington, this museum delivers a short, shocking history lesson in brutality and deceit, along with the uh, inspiring studies in courage and a jarring relevance. The museum, which is curated by Elizabeth Spaulding and Lee Edwards of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, which was established by an act of Congress back in 1993, and it's funded by private donors and gifts from the governments of Hungary, Poland, Estonia, and Latvia. It provides an account of the complexities of revolutionary theories that is clear. Communism, we read on a screen in the first gallery, remembering the victims, is, quote, a system of centralized power in which a single-party dictatorship abolishes private property and controls the means of production and the distribution of goods and services. 
The practice of that ideology is also simple. Quote, under the pretense of classless egalitarian society, communist regimes rely on force, they use brutality, and repress speech, religion, assembly, and all other rights and freedoms. Since the uh, Russian Revolution of 1917, we read more than 100 million people have been killed by communist regimes. Now, people might jump up and say, how dare they? This, uh, this is a museum, and yet it's a tax-deductible charity, and it's giving uh, chapters of history with a, a, a totally partisan view of it. Well, I- I'm sorry, that's not true. No one would say that about a museum of Nazism. Or, for instance, the Holocaust Museum which is one of the two most uh, visited museum sites in the country. And yes, it's appropriate to remember the Holocaust, but yes, it's also very, very appropriate and profoundly relevant to make sure that Americans remember the murderous nature of the communist ideology. And it's not a joke in either side. And in fact, the, the communist recollection is even more urgent because there are still communist countries. Uh, there are no, thank God, fascist or Nazi countries that uh, exist to the depths of the uh, Third Reich. But the, the idea that somehow communism is less serious, what is that based on? It's based on a distortion of history. The Remembering the Victims section of the New Museum moves efficiently from Karl Marx and Frederick Engels' Communist Manifesto of 1848 to the Russian Revolution of 1917, Lenin's launch of the Global Comintern in 1919, and the early years of Stalin's bloody dictatorship. A timeline traces how Marx's manifesto developed into Engels' scientific socialism, and how Trotsky and Lenin seized the movement in 1917. The jerky footage of uh, Bolsheviks in the streets of Tsarist Russia might seem ancient history to younger visitors, but the crisp photographs on the opposite wall, child soldiers in Nicaragua today, civil war and famine in Ethiopia, forced labor in North Korea, show that communism, a European ideology from the age of empires, was the last imperial export in the era of uh, decolonization. Resistance, which is the third gallery, depicts how communist regimes hardened into uh, police states. One wall is a giant screen showing the Hungarians in 1956 and the Czechoslovakians in 1968 facing down Soviet tanks and massive repression. But the communists could not destroy their real enemy, This was not bourgeois capitalism, but the desire for freedom symbolized by a Samizdat, Beatles record, printed on an X-ray, perhaps the most noble copyright violation in history of pop, or the uh, million worshippers at Pope John Paul II's mass in Warsaw in 1979. Uh, visitors face the dilemmas of resistance by playing a multiple-choice game. Its scenarios derive from the struggles of real people, such as Ju Wao, a child forced laborer in North Korea, and Alex, an East German pastor 
who must decide between making his church a redoubt of the conscience and exposing his flock to the attentions of the Stasi. That was the East German secret police, notably brutal. And then they say this, and it's just so important to remember because one of the things that Americans need is not only more knowledge of our own history, but more knowledge of world history so you understand just how exceptional America is. Communism collapsed in Europe by popular demand, writes Dominic Green in the Wall Street Journal. In China, however, the CCP, Chinese Communist Party, repressed the 1989 student protests in Tiananmen Square, a tent, a banner, and a blood-stained shirt from the protests are among the items in the rotating exhibition space upstairs. The uh, next show will be on Cuba and Venezuela. Unbelievable. Today, the museum tells us some 1.5 billion people still live under communism, mostly in China. It is uh, good that a museum designed for school trips pushes its moral into a present that struggles to remember the recent past. As Václav Havel said, he was the Czech writer, novelist, political leader, uh, who was part of the liberation of uh, Czechoslovakia, now the Czech Republic. As Havel said, the fundamental threat to communism's empire of lies was speaking the truth. And uh, Americans need to continue to do that. And one of the things that is actually maybe a little bit inspiring even at the moment is that uh, when you look at the situation that is going on in, in Britain, first of all, uh, Boris Johnson is honoring a, a peaceful transition of power, and which I think is enormously to his credit and is something that we ought to recognize and be grateful for. And secondly, any of the prospective new prime ministers, all of whom represent the Conservative Party, uh, will be a prime minister who is committed, and perhaps even more than Boris Johnson, to the crucial support for Ukraine uh, in a, a battle against some of the evils left over from the old KGB officer Vladimir Putin and uh, for the Russian imperialism, which goes back to the czars, of course. Uh, the, uh, the fate of that war we'll be speaking about with David Leonhardt, one of the editors at the New York Times. There are three possible outcomes in Ukraine. What will they mean? We will also talk about new revelations about some of the political associations of... Uh, Bobby Cremo III, and some of the astonishing claims of his father. He, of course, the shooter who murdered uh, seven people and wounded about 40 others in uh, Highland Park, Illinois, on the 4th of July. And then we'll be talking about the uh, Democratic Party and the liberation, maybe even, of these public schools in San Francisco, California. How is that happening? Well, it's the power of votes, which is the ultimate power and remains the ultimate power in this greatest nation on God's green earth.